0: Virgil, when we get to Dante next week or the following week, we're going to be back in a story. Um, but what Dante is going to be um, revealing to us is going to be. My wife wanted to say hello.
1: <laughs> Hi guys. <laughs> good
0: evening. Good evening. She just has a hard way, a hard a hard way of saying hello.
1: He has a hard way of getting out of the way. <laughs>
0: Does that sound like a wife? <laughs> anyway, it's hi Ann. it's good to see you. Um Ann is your can you hear me? I can. Okay, okay. You've got your hand up on the screen. Did you wanna Oh
2: that was an accident? Is it off now?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think when I put it on the uh, screen rest, I must have hit it.
0: <laughs> no, all of us were waiting for se- all of us were waiting for something profound. <laughs> Melody, any any news on your husband? Search for a job? Anything happening?
2: Not yet. Still no. mm. enjoying our togetherness. Mm. We sat down and actually watched. Casablanca on the on TV today. I got to sit down for a few hours and watch it with me. So
0: why did you was, Why did you choose that?
2: I love that movie. Do you? I love that movie.
0: Why? Go ahead. Why?
2: Because um, I think the acting is fantastic, and it's just so tender and heartfelt and and real because he's so mad at her. You know, not knowing why she left, and then to have that turnaround. I don't know. I, just, I love all the characters. It's a good show. But anyway, it's fun. And then we went for a bike ride. Well, It's all good.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I, I don't know that I would have said this a year ago, but there's not a question in my mind how much of a romantic you are at heart.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately,
0: not. Not unfortunately, not unfortunately. She's
1: married to Odysseus, she
0: has Yeah, to yeah. Did you hear Suzanne's comment?
1: No. If you're married to Odysseus, you
2: have to be. That's right. I mean, I'm a lucky woman. I just have
1: to appreciate that.
0: So. You know that everybody, and trusting everybody who's been with us for a while, I know that Melody's under a false name here. She's under a false. Her real name is Penelope.
3: You know,
2: I actually need to use that, that for a password now because nobody would ever guess that, so, except for you guys. So don't tell anybody. I'll use that as a password.
0: Okay. Oh, Stephanie, you're back. Got it. Admit all, sir. Hi, Tina.
4: Stephanie.
0: You weren't here to appreciate the irony, but about two minutes ago, I had to turn my volume up, and I said, "Where's Stephanie? Where's, St- where's Stephanie? Goodness me!" Okay. Um, it's good to see you all. Good to see you all. Uh, let's see. Is everybody in? I'm gonna. I'm gonna start. Um. What's that?
1: Somebody's
0: phone. Oh. Do Do me a favor. You guys take a minute with each other. i um. Do you want to say hello? Come sit for a second. I'll be. Give me thirty seconds. I'll be right back. Hello. Something
2: so antisocial. Hey, Dave and Kay. I just want to throw out a compliment to you because you think this is so easy, easier to read, and I am just sometimes I'm totally lost. Like I'll have to. She'll say something profound, lady lady philosophy will say something profound I have to read it like five times and then I'm still not sure so kudos to you I and Maria too she says she loves philosophy and I'm, I just feel like I don't know I don't I I like I, I like this book but I'm not quite as good at catching on as you guys are
1: was complimenting Kay and Dave because they were enjoying Ben because she struggled.
0: oh really. Millie, you were saying you were struggling with it?
1: It's just,
2: you know, it's one of those things I have to read, when she says something philosophical and I read it and then I read it again and I read it again and I I don't know I, I'm i not that, I don't have that mindset to be able to go, oh yes, A, B, C, D it all makes sense now I. So and that's, that's okay, I'm not beating myself up, up over it but
0: yeah, let me take a second just on that. Um, hi, Connie, Ted, Tina. It's good to see you guys.
3: Hi.
0: Maria, I know you're here. I don't see a, a face, but um, I want to take a second with what Melanie just said. Um, hi, Maria. Oh God. So Hello. If, <laughs> it's always a joy to see that smile of yours. And, and there's so many times when I'm halfway through Boethius and reading him, and having a difficult time following him, and thinking, it, Maria will straighten this out. Maria was straighten this out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: Mellie, let me just respond to that, because I'm... Um, <sighs> I have no... I mean, you guys are still around. I mean, you've been around now for, I don't know what it is, a year. Um, when you read literature, you're back in the world. And with all of its random, mysterious character, you know. You're not reading an argument. You're back in a world where things happen. And so we're back in the world as we know it. You go to the bank, somebody trips you, um, you vote for somebody and you're in a fight, a political fight because somebody doesn't like your ideas. You know, we're back in the real world. We're not in a world of arguments. We're in a, a world of action where things are taking place just the way they do in our life. In one sense, it's hard to read literature. You can enjoy a, a good storyteller will keep us in a story, and you'll read along. But I'm trusting that you guys have seen now with our work together that you can read a story and not understand it. When you get to the end of it and put it together and say, "Now what? What's the whole action? What was he doing here? Why did he? What does it mean?" Then you realize you have to step back from reality. You know, one thing happens after another, and put it together and I mean I've been doing that for my life but I I mean I was so taken by Kay and David's comment uh, particularly Kay and now Melody yours because the first time that I read the Odyssey just for an example I read the Odyssey and thought what's the big deal you know it wasn't required for me as an undergraduate major because it was in Greek so it wasn't included I was an English major so it would have been included in Greek or you know, or, or the, the Aeneid would have been included in uh, Latin, but it wasn't required in English. When I finally read it, when I came back to UD to do my doctorate and had to read it then, it was a mind-blowing experience for me because I realized English majors go through literature and they have no sense of their background. None of them would have read the Iliad, the Aeneid, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy, And if you don't read those and go on to English literature, you don't even know your foundations. So it's one of the problems with specializations. I'm only saying that because the first time I read the Iliad, I read it on my own and read it and got nothing out of it, absolutely nothing. Now, I mean, at some point in my life, I realized this is a foundation work. There's no way I could have seen that. So literature presents us with an interesting problem with really good works of literature. Boethius is uh, is an interesting work because he's combining a storytelling mode with a philosophic argument. You know, Boethius in jail is going to die, so it's a story, it's a dialogue. But it's an argument, and in some ways it's easier to follow because it's an argument. You, It's conceptual, you can say, if this, then this, and... But I happen to think the nature of that argument is not easy to follow. You know, I've read it a number of times, and I I still have to slow down with it, um, because I think that he's dealing, he's going to first principles. He's going to those first principles that are beneath everything else that nobody looks at. And when you go to them, you realize how hard they are. To get to first principles is to get to the, those causes of everything. That's what a first principle is. They're the sources of everything else. And nobody goes to them today. So you guys are going to first principles. And even though the argument may seem simple, it's an easy language, it's an easy read. Conceptually, I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's tough to follow. Um, I have to work at it. And I get lost. And very often when I think about getting lost, I think, Maria will pull me out of this. She'll get me out of this. (laughs) You guys ready? Are you guys ready? Okay. Um, I'm going to skip the poem tonight. Um, I'm sorry to do that. Um, Last night we had a technical problem, and we didn't get on for 15 minutes late. We didn't get on until a quarter of seven. So I skipped the poem, and I'd, I'd like to try to keep the poems parallel, to, because we're doing Auden's poem in, at St. Francis, too. So I'm going to skip the poem tonight. Um, I hope that doesn't bother anybody. We still have a couple of weeks on it. It's You know it's been a long poem and a hard one, um, and I, I don't want to rush through it. And I'd like to try to keep the, the two um, nights together, the two groups together. So... Um, But I would like to start with prayers. Um, This is an important time historically for all of us because an election took place, and I think a lot of us feel that um, the issues um, uh, that were um, involved in that election go to very, very deep things. So I, I know for lots of people it's a... For lots of people, it's a happy moment. For lots of people, it's a troubling moment. But anyway, it's been a, it's been a long week and a tough week. Um, and I know lots of people have heavy hearts. Um, so um, I, um, I know everybody's got prayers. and um, Any prayer requests? Um, I, I'll say a prayer for our country at the very end. But any prayer requests from you guys? What's the other teacher, Doc, who's Stephanie's friend, the other?
4: Heather?
0: Heather, yeah. Stephanie, we haven't seen Heather for a while, and I'm missing her. Is she okay? Uh,
2: yeah, they just have very busy evenings these days.
0: Yeah. You tell her I don't care if she's having busy evenings. You get, tell her to get, that's for me, tell her to get back here.
2: <laughs> I will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you imagine what a wife has to put up with somebody... No prayer requests. None? John. John. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How good it is to be together again. Um, it's rare. Um, your words were where two or three are gathered in your name. I hope I'm not mistaken here. I don't think I am. Um, I don't think anybody would be gathering here if we didn't love truth as much as we did. And if our fate weren't an issue, um, from my perspective, what's amazing about this group is um, that the first, um, the first concern, of everybody's soul is. Um, I'm going to mute you guys because I heard an echo. Sorry. If if you guys need to come on, come on. Don't don't hesitate. Um, everybody's first concern is faith. I mean, it's you, but. We live in a world in which the virtues of reason, the worth of it, um, they they are being trashed. It's the, the basis, I mean, it leads us to you. It's, uh, it's the ground on which we stand that points to you. Um, um, there's more to be known in mysteries. That's our trust. Um, we, we live in a world in which we Called to bring faith, hope, and charity because we know that what's at issue are mysteries. But um, all those mysteries are intelligible. There's a meaning to them, even if we don't see them. And our reason is a way into them. It's a strength to our faith that it helps us understand our faith better, to see it more deeply, to live it. So, bless us in the work that we're doing here together. Help us to keep those two things together. um, our commitment to grow in our powers of reason, to understand the truths of our faith, um, and to live them. My my special prayer tonight is that um, um, you offer us yourself in the sacraments, particularly in the Eucharist, that when we receive you, we're called to enter into your kingdom, to bring your kingdom to whatever we're doing. It can be in a living room, It is. it is for all of us tonight. But if we receive you, there's some sense in which, in which we are present in your kingdom. Your kingdom is present to us. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, let it be here. Help us, uh, particularly in our struggles to put our, away our own sins. Um, to put them away, to grow in the holiness that you call all of us to. So... Bless the work we're doing together. Help us to find a strength in each other. Um, It's certainly there for me to see what you guys are doing. Um, To be blessed in our awareness of how we share these things together. Um, Let your blessing be upon us um, to make these works living in our lives, not just in our heads. This is not just about understanding something. It's about understanding something and then picking up the burdens of living it much harder thing to do. So, um, ask for a blessing on the work we're doing. Ask for a blessing on our son Jonathan, some of the physical threats that he seems to be facing. Um, Keep them off, please, and be with Thomas and Christopher in their struggles. Um, We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, sorry, sorry, go back. Um, we just faced an election. And we're a divided country. There are prejudices everywhere, and lots of people don't want to admit them on both sides, all sides of the color spectrum. Um, we, we all carry prejudices. Um, we won't get better if we don't acknowledge them, if we keep blaming others. So give us the courage to be honest about them in ourselves, and help our awareness of that, help us in whatever we do to answer these problems. It's not just race, um, abortion, immigration, um, lots is going on in our country. So, um, Mary, we ask um, for your prayers on this. Please pray for um, a coming together in a country and for political leaders to get real on fundamental problems um, somehow to make a greater place for patience in what we're all doing with each other. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. um, To start tonight, I'd like to go back to... um, look at a couple of passages in Boethius 4 because I know we were struggling with this last week. Um, Oops, are they on? I
1: think so. I'm just checking.
0: (coughs) Mm, They're on time. Um, Let's see. You remember in 3 Boethius I see, do you have a general? Hold on, you guys. Yeah, so you remember what's issue, what's at the root of this work, that's a story and a philosophic argument, is a question of justice. Um, and rewards and punishments. Boethius is in jail, falsely accused of doing something he didn't do. There's no justice in what's happening. When the story begins, he's feeling sorry for himself and angry. He doesn't deserve what's happening. And I hope that speaks to everybody, because I know it does me. When things don't go the way we want, maybe it's not as true for you guys as it is for me, but... When things don't go the way we want, we get angry and upset and respond with some sense that I don't deserve that. And, you know. I mean, Boethius is in the worst possible situation. It's not just that things are going against him, that some injustice has been done to him. It's that he's going to die. So the injustice to him is absolute. He's going to lose his life. Can you imagine a man in jail going to his death, having the, calm, the presence of mind? to write this work. How's that for getting a hold of your fears? Or your, or, your, or your anger? Your anger or your self-pity? Yeah? I mean, how many of us have the wherewithal when we're, somebody's really upset us to sit down and write something? As, because this is truly one, one of the most amazing works of the Middle Ages. and He's taking everything of Plato and Aristotle and in some ways going way beyond what Plato could have done. So he's dealing with essentially with a question of justice he, and um, what happens to a man when something unjust happens to him, when the natural longing of the human soul is to be happy. So he's going on in his life, struggling the way he does. He was in the Senate, involved in the Senate, and suddenly accusations are made with him. He longs for happiness. He's written all these things. He loves philosophy, which is a great passion for his life, and he's put in jail. Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, "Knock it off! You've lost your way. You you know this anamnesis thing that you've got to find your way again, and you won't do that unless you go back to your beginnings and your end." Um, And I'm going to say this now because I'm afraid I'll forget to say it later. Think about the ending of this work. Um, Philosophy speaking, we don't go back to Boethius. We're left with her thoughts. So just in terms of a, of a story, a drama, think about the significance of that. Anyway, she comes to him and says, you've lost your way, and then she starts. You remember in, in the early book, she takes on all those things that most humans think of as um, sources of happiness, and she shows that they're all wrong. Pleasure, power, wealth, family, background, all those things and then um, reaches a point where she says th- there's only one thing that will answer the longing in every human being, that's gone. Because God. Because all the other things are not self-sufficient, they're not self-sustaining, they're they're ephemeral, they're passing. We can't hold on to our power, our control. We can't hold our wealth. In fact, very often people who get wealthy live in anxiety because they're afraid they're going to lose it. So most of the things that people seek out to be happy as a matter of fact end up increasing the miseries. They can lead to addictions, um, anxieties, fears, all these attachments to the world um, that we form thinking they will make us happy actually end up um, increasing our burdens. So she's answered all of those, shown that they make no sense, and finally reaches a point where she says, there's only one thing that will answer the long, you know, all human beings, and that's gone. So that's where we were. And I want to pick up, I want to pick up there. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to use this desktop. Why not? Um, hold on, guys. Um... on page 103 she's already at this point made the case that our happiness will not be satisfied until it's placed on an object that is infinite self-sufficient not passing not ephemeral there's only one thing that has those qualities and that's God she identifies um, the goodness of him and the unity. Those are the things that distinguish God. Um, <coughs> at the end of book four, I want to just quickly review here and go back to the point that I thought we were struggling with because I, I just don't want to leave this alone. Um, I, it, it's, it's so basic. It's, it's a first principle and it's one of those things that a lot of people trip over and I want to make sure we're solid on it before we go on. On page 103... Um, philosophy says you're urging me to the greatest of all questions Um, the subject is of such a kind that when one doubt has been removed countless others spring up in its place like the hydra's head the only way to check them is with a really lively intellectual fire she's making clear, I I think all of us know this, very often we we try to attack a problem and no sooner do we succeed in it than we realize um, we got another problem and um, um, the images of a hydra, because you know, if you know anything about the hydra, you know once you cut off one of her heads, she's got others. If we don't learn to go to a root problem, we will never solve all the others because they're all connected to this root problem, yeah? So she says the only way to check them is with a really lively intellectual fire. So she's been making clear all along, remember, she's offering them a cure and she's offering him tougher and tougher medicine. She's getting closer to a root problem, so she's um, she's asking for a greater intellectual commitment, a fire, because it's going to ask more of Boethius and his mind, and I think also of us. The usual subjects of inquiry concern oneness of providence, the course of fate, the haphazard nature of the random events of chance. This is page 104 at the top. Divine knowledge and predestination and the freedom of the will. You can see for yourself how difficult. So, right now, we are tackling the foundational, the root problems. The oneness of providence, the course of fate, the haphazard nature of random events, all the chance things that go on in life, divine knowledge and predestination. Okay? Go down below on page 104. I think I'm probably going to read. A little bit more tonight than I usually do because I don't want to. I don't want to take this text for granted. And I don't want to skim over it. I want to. I want to try to help all of us understand this better. Um, she says um, that as if she were starting a fresh argument, she spoke as follows. This is one o four. The generation of all things, the whole progress of things, subject to change, and whatever moves in any way receive their causes, their due order, and their form from the unchanging mind of God. In the high citadel of its oneness, the mind of God has set up a plan for the multitude of events. When this plan is thought of as in the purity of God's understanding, it's called providence. When it's thought of with reference to all things, whose motion and order it controls, it's called by the name, the ancients gave it, fate. And let me just... I can. Um, When we're in the world, when we're in the world, we know that the world appears to be a matter of chance, random things. We're on the store, uh, uh, we get a flat. We're in the store, somebody bumps into us and the person happens to have um, the coronavirus and we take ill. All sorts of things happen over which we don't have control. So there's an element of random chance governing the world. But you know that Boeth- Boethius's philosophy, uh, the Lady Philosophy, has already said up to this point that the constancy, the order of the universe, all indicate an intellect, a mind, that's ordered them. Maria said this, I thought so well, a couple of weeks ago. Chance happens rarely. You know, and I, I asked that question. There are some scientists who think that everything's chance. That makes absolutely no sense because there's too much order in the universe and she said if, there, if, if everything's chance you can not study it because if nothing stands still, it's one thing and then gone. It's not there. There's nothing to study. We, we can only study things. There can only be a science because there's something there to study. So the whole universe gives an indication of um, an intelligent design, if I can put it that way. There's too much order.
1: Right, book
0: three or four. I'm at the end of 4 doc on page 104 Oh, it's in it's, um, it's 6 it's section 6 okay. so lady philosophy is saying if you look at things according to the way they appear as humans we call that fate things just go on and we don't have any sense of control over them but when you stand with God outside of time um, that way of looking at things is called providence so she's making a distinction in the way that we look at things right now from our perspective, from God's. She says on page 105, and I think this is, I think this is probably one of the most important images um, that's given to Western man or man period. It's the image of a still point. It's at the center of Dante. When we get to Dante, you're going to see it there. T.S. Eliot, every, every work of art implies it, a still point. If I, I could make that clear in a second. So she's saying there's two ways standing in the world on the surface where everything's jumbled and rambled and random and and there's a simplicity and an order at the center. Okay? On page 105. Everything, therefore, which comes under fate is also subject to providence, to which fate itself is subject. But certain things which come under providence are above the chain of fate. These are things which rise above the order of change, ruled over by fate. In virtue of the stability of their position close to the supreme godhood, you can imagine an order of angels. I mean, just whether you believe in them, if you could a minute for a minute imagine them, that um, that those angels that are closer to the human order are involved more immediately in random things, and those angels that are closer to God are, are closer to him, His simplicity. Dante, we use that image. These are things which rise above the order of change ruled over by fate in virtue of the stability of their position. The inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center, while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside it to revolve around. The circle furthest out rotates through a wider orbit, and the greater its distance from the individual center point, the greater the space it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in every stronger chains of fate, and everything is the freer from fate the closer it seeks the center of things. And if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it is free from movement, and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding, between that which is coming into being and that which is, between time and eternity, or between the moving circle and the still point at its center. I hope everybody if you just hold on to the image forget the thinking for a minute if you just hold on to the image you know that at the center of the circle and by the way this i mean mathematicians say that if you look at a circle um, and you move out the farther away from the circle the faster you move
1: right from the center
0: from the center so if you look at a tire the outermost rim is moving faster than the, than the the center right I mean, I hope everybody can see that. If you're way out of the side, you're going really fast. As you get to the center, you're approaching a center. Mathematicians will say and prove it rationally that center is still; it's not moving. Euclid will make that point: the still point is moving or motionless. As you move out from it, things get faster and faster and faster. So if you get closer to the circumference of the circle, you're caught up in a world in which things are confusing and going too fast. Um, The closer you move towards the center, towards God, the more you move away from the multiplicity, the complexity of the world, towards peace, calm. Okay, That's the image. I know you all know that, whether you want to admit it or not, because I know every one of you has reached a point where you say, I need to take a break. And you, what you do is try to get yourself away from noise, movement, motion. You want to find a peace because all of us know that we can let the world take us up. And when we do, it can have awful effects. Okay, everybody, you all understand the image, right? Um, okay. Okay. On page 108, so she's made a distinction between what she's calling fate or destiny and providence. And it's important to see the difference. Right now, if you can just be patient, even if it's not clear, be patient for a minute because it's going to be fundamental to to book five, and that's where we're going. I just want to review things right now. So she's going to have more to say on it, which will clear it up, just if you'll be patient for a second. Page 108, she says... It often happens that supreme power is given to good men. Now, here, here's the difference. This is crucial. So, we're in the world. Boy, if this doesn't change our faith, we're in the world and we're watching a guy kill another man, let's just say. You know, if you've been watching the news for the last six months, we've been watching rioters where they actually show films of people being gunned down. You know, I mean, I'm partly sorry that they even show that on film, but we're watching executions. A guy coming up to a police car and shooting a policeman. You know, he the policeman, the policeman is living his life, doing his job, and one second he's alive, and the next second he's dead, and didn't even know it's coming. So you watch evil men do evil things and think how evil, how bad, and we watch virtuous men do good things and think how good. In Boethius, we're watching those two opposites meet. Because Boethius is saying why does God allow evil to happen to good men and um, bad happen to or sorry, why why does evil, why does God allow evil happen to good men and why does he allow evil men to prosper? Okay. So she's making a distinction now between two ways of seeing, between looking at the world from a circumference, from the perspective of fate, and providence. So she's making a distinction, not in what's there, but how we look at them. Okay. This will become clear in a second. Often it happens that supreme power is given to good men so that the exuberance of wickedness may be checked. Others receive a mixture of good and bad fortune according to their quality of mind. Prudence stings some people to avoid giving them happiness for too long. Because we know that sometimes being happy too long makes us complacent. And that others she allows to be vexed by hard fortune to strengthen their virtues of mind by the use of exercise of patience. Some people are um, excessively afraid of suffering for which they actually have um, the endurance. Others are full of scorn for suffering they cannot in fact bear. Both kinds she brings to self-discovery through hardship. Now stop and think about it a minute because you remember that she's already defined God as goodness. He is complete goodness. God doesn't look at things the way we do. He's in eternity. What we're learning from her presentation just now is that God allows some people to do bad things in the presence of good things so those bad people can be corrected. Let me give an example. Let's say a guy extorts a company, gets millions of dollars, Um, so he's done a bad thing, but he comes to a point where he realizes to hold on to that bad, that money, he's got to start doing good things, and he's got to start avoiding evil people because he knows if he doesn't, evil people are going to take it from him. So there's indirectly incentives for him to try to become good. And good people who think they're virtuous have to face temptations because their virtue hasn't been tested. know, they can think, I'm really good, and discover they're not as good as they think they are. So the Lady's philosophy is showing us that there's this providential God who is aware of things using good and evil for purposes that we don't often understand well. Okay? Can I go on? Any questions? She says on page 109, and so sovereign providence has often produced a remarkable effect. Evil men making other evil men good, for some, when they think they suffer injustice at the hands of the worst of men, burn with hatred for evil men, and and being eager to be different from those they hate, have reformed and become virtuous. It's only the power of God to which evil may also be good, and by their proper use, he elicits some good result. If God is a good God, he's doing everything he can to bring good out of evil. Because he's a good God. Yeah. The bottom of page 109. It's not allowed to man to comprehend in thought all the ways of the divine work or expound them in speech. Let it be enough that we have seen that God, the author of all natures, orders all things directs them towards goodness. Now, this is absolutely crucial. Because one of my concerns, I I believe there's a Manichaean element in our church. I'll get to that in a minute if it's not clear what that is. Um, Orders all things, directs them towards goodness. He's quick to hold all that he has created in his own image. And by means of the chain of necessity presided over by fate, banishes all evil from the bounds of his commonwealth. Evil is thought to abound on earth, but if you could see the plan of providence, you would not think there was evil anywhere. So the conclusion, which is where we went last week, is on page 111. Do you now see what is the consequence of all that we've said? And Boethius naturally says, of course not. I mean, you, know, if you If any of you are struggling with this, you know what the, it's like saying, do you understand the consolation? And halfway through I'd say, I've got serious questions about some of it. So she said, do you understand? He says, no, what is it? Her conclusion, all fortune is certainly good. Poitiers' response, how can that be? Now this is where we were last week, and I want to I pick up with this question before we go on. Um, because she's going on to say that God is doing everything he can to reward innocence and punish evil. And you remember that the backstory, the biblical backstory for the Boethius Consolation, is the Job story. And if you've read that story, you know that the Job story begins when Satan comes to God and says, You like this guy Job, you think a lot of him, he's so righteous, but he's not. He's only being good because you give him things, let him be tested, and you'll see how weak he is. So, Satan, this is the story. I mean pick it up I'm not exaggerating God allows evil that's what's going on he allows evil um, to try job to make sure his goodness is good and if you've read the job story you know that it's a he loses everything and all it's it's so it's so old so old, old Testament three of his friends come up and say typically in an Old Testament fashion all of this is happening to you because you're bad. God, it's a wonderful story. This is only proof that you're not as good as you think you are. God is punishing you because you're bad. Because you remember if somebody had a sickness or somebody, it was a sign that you were an evil. a member if, if you had leprosy or, you know, the, the sins of your parents were coming to bear on you or... Christ did away with that. Absolutely crushed it. At the end of the Job story, Yahweh comes to... Um, Job and his friends, and he banishes his friends. He says, you're more wrong than Job is. Get away. And Job is rewarded with all this goodness, even though through the whole thing he kept questioning God. How could God allow this? So at this point, um, Lady Flossie has come to the conclusion that there is no bad fortune. So that's the intro to book five. Before we get to go to book five. I want to go back to the question that we talked about last week. According to Plato and Aristotle, God is complete good. I just want to take a minute if if this is all clear to you, be patient with me for a minute. God is all good. He is being itself. He has to be if that's if if complete goodness is one of our definitions of God, it has to be complete in itself. If it's incomplete, if he owes his goodness to something else, it means there's something else greater than he is. So he's complete goodness. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. He is complete in himself. God desires nothing. To think about God desiring anything means you're putting him in an earthly world. God is love. He loves. He knows. He is. He is being itself. There's nothing outside of him. He is. Now if that's true, what is evil? I just want to be clear on this. Can evil exist outside of God? Stephanie, I want you to, next time you teach a class, I want you to put this question to your students in, you know, 6th grade, 12th grade. Sort of a basic question, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful question because it seems so simple and But it's amazing the depths of, I don't know what to call it, wisdom, rationality there is isn't it. If God is complete in himself, what is evil? Can evil exist outside of God? Somebody answer that. Can evil exist outside of God? I thought we came together to have a discussion here.
2: Come
4: God on, you. is complete. Mm-hmm. If God is good, then evil is the absence of God.
2: Exactly.
0: Okay. Can you explain why? Is that you, David? I think it's you. It's, I'm not. Yeah. Can you explain yeah. why that has to be? Well, you can't have. If God is all good.
4: That means there's no evil in, within him. Right. Then evil has to be
0: outside of God. It has, to be, it has to be an absence of God's presence. Wait, how can an absence be outside of him as if it were something? That's my question. Here, I'm glad you put it that. Let's say, because my question is, does evil exist outside of him? That's my question. Can evil exist outside of God? Nothing can exist outside of God. Good. Okay, so what does that make evil? God's will. No. God willed evil? (laughs) He permitted it. (laughs) I think this is so good. Wait, just to go back, is everybody clear? If evil existed outside of God, it means something else was created other than God. Right? And then you have to ask, who created evil? I hope everybody's following me because this is just a logical argument. It's so simple. And yet nobody, nobody goes to these root things. Um, Evil cannot exist outside of God. Nothing can exist. He is complete in himself. If evil existed outside of him, you have to say, then who created it? Could a good God have created evil? By the way, Calvin's going to get close to that because Calvin's going to say God created some men evil. I mean, that, that to me is one of the most horrific pieces of theology in history. How could a good God create an evil soul? God created Satan? What's Satan? Wait, wait. Did God create Satan evil? No. No, he did not. This is crucial. This is where we're going. So what is evil?
2: (laughs) Anti-God.
0: Now flesh that out. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) If God is complete goodness... (laughs) <laughs> and evil is anti-God. What does that make evil?
2: Well, as Dave said a minute ago, and I remember the nuns teaching us when I was a child, it's absence of God, distance from God.
0: Or privation is one of the...
2: Mm-hmm. Right, know. that's a good word.
0: Yeah.
3: Privation.
0: Who's speaking right now? Sorry. Ann. Ann. Anne. oh, Anne. Ann? i wasn't watching i was watching your does anybody have any questions about that dante is going to say correctly i think in the divine comedy when we get there in the middle of the Purgatorio, and this is going to blow your mind away but hold on to this god created nothing evil he didn't create satan evil (laughs) He created Satan. He created a whole hierarchy of angels. Satan's was the most... Br- I mean, it's so telling. And St. Thomas's answer is that Satan fell in that instant. God made all the angels good. He did not make anything bad. How could a, how could a good God make something bad? But he gave the angels free will, you know, and a hierarchy... And Satan, the highest of angels, did not want to be contingent, to be dependent. Um, He wanted to be like God and turned against him. So evil is the turning against goodness. It's a privation. It cannot be a thing in itself. If you say that evil is a thing in itself, outside God, you're Manichaean or Zoroastrian. The Zoroastrian belief is that good and evil are inextricably caught up in a battle eternally. If that's true, there's no reason not to be evil. If evil is eternal, I mean, you can't escape it anyway. The only sensible explanation for God is the one that Boethius is giving us. He's complete goodness that evil is nothing. He's made this argument again and again, that when an evil man turns from God, even if he thinks he's showing power... He's actually showing how weak he is because he doesn't have the strength to do good. The whole effort, the whole struggle of our life, particularly with the sins that we carry, is to try to overcome them, the struggle with God's help to get better. That's why the sacraments are so important for us. So let me let me just stop. Is everybody does anybody have any questions about that? Cuz that's a first principle. That's That's the beginning of everything. If we've got a question there, we're going to have questions everywhere else. God is good. Evil is not something outside of him. Because if it is, you have to say, where did it come from? Who created it? Um, Then you've got God in contest with somebody. Evil is a privation. It's turning away from God and losing goodness, becoming weaker and weaker and weaker until we'll see in, in in hell, in Dante's hell, you become a, it's like a parody of yourself that human beings are in hell, but the last thing you can say about them is that they're human beings. They're human beings, but they're like machines caught. They can't, can't get free of what they've chosen. So instead of growing or being happy or joyful, they're miserable, they're caught, um, They've turned away from God, um, and um, the good that they've refused ends up being a punishment to them, a pain to them. Um, When we get to the Divine Comedy, it'll it'll be a little bit clearer, but the ground for it is laid here with Boethius and what he's saying here. Any questions?
2: (coughs) Okay, I have one. Good. Melody. Um, Okay, so if we can think of goodness... On A sliding scale if you go to the right it's goodness and at the the end of that line is God Evil is just sliding back toward the left. So, you know um, The the cashier gives you five extra dollars at the grocery store by accident and you accept it You know it and you don't say anything. That's just it's just sliding back away from goodness and then the, it it happens that the the more uh, evil acts that you do, maybe then you start stealing stuff or stealing money. That's sliding back farther down on the scale. So on this this line scale of goodness, evil is just sliding away from God, sliding away from the ultimate goodness. Yeah. is that a way to think about it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The the the. The trouble I'm having with the image, and um, correct me here, Melody. I mean, I'm glad for the exchanges. For me, I wouldn't put this. So you said first of all, you you start with an image like it was a balance between one thing over here and one thing here, and you start here, and you. I I would say that's misleading because then it makes evil like a balance to God. It would okay. be more. It would be more correct to say the source of goodness is God here. And here's his creation, you know, this line. So there's nothing that's not good. Everything's good. But the source of it is here. So it, if by using a balance like that with, you know, something over here and something here and moving towards God, it's already confusing because nothing that didn't come from him. So the, for me, the line image would be more accurate if you just put a circle, God, and drew a line out, and that line represented everything in creation grades. So plants, flowers, animals, humans, all the variety of good things. Um, they all participate in good. Nothing exists except in God. Really, nothing exists except in Him. And the more the more you turn away from Him, um, the more you remain away from Him into something lacking to Him. So here's the interesting paradox in your in your image or your you know your the way you. Your graph put it in. He- this is really interesting in hell because Dante or Boethius will say here evil's nothing, which could be misleading. It's accurate and some...
2: that's I don't get that analysis.
0: I know. Let me hear. It. Let me finish. I, and then uh, then I want to hear your response. It's 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 actually a little bit confusing. It would be better. You'll, it'll get clear with Dante. God made nothing bad. Everything he made is good. He's the source of things. So here's the circle. And everything out from him is good. But the one thing that distinguishes human beings from the rest of creation, plants, animals, is he has free will and an intellect. He can see things like God. He can choose. So he has an autonomy of freedom and a mind that nothing in creation does. Satan, the angels did. Humans do. So humans can reject their source. That's part of what's going on here. When they do, they turn away from God and from the plenitude, the fullness, the completeness that he offers to an absence, a lack of him. But in hell, so every human being was created with an immortal soul in the image of God. They don't, by, by rejecting God, they don't cease to exist. They don't, they're not annihilated and, you know, and become nothing. They're still there. But they're living in a denial. They've made their choices. That's what they are. So what they become at the end is something less than human. They're not, you know, they have a human shape. They've got a mind, but they're, they've are they chosen their sins. That's what they've got. But it's misleading to say nothing. In one sense, it's absolutely true because when you look at them you and you set them against God in all of his plenitude, there's nothing there. I mean, they're just, they're stuck. Um, but it would be I think it would be less confusing if you started with an image of the source, the circle, and then drew everything, a line, you know, that's all creation. And I'm not even sure, it would, actually, you know, the more I think about it, the, the more it would probably be more accurate. I, I, this is off the top of my head now, responding to you. Um, it would probably be more accurate to draw a large circle and then a line out from the center, not going to the circumference. And saying that that line was all of creation, but it existed in Him because there's nothing that exists outside of God. All of His creation. So do
1: people
0: in we think we think of God as outside, you know, over there. When we're a part of His creation, and He's when you get to Dante, this like the still point in the circle. He's everywhere present in creation. He made it all. So the more accurate picture would be to draw a circle and then draw a line from the center, but not going beyond the circumference, because that implies that there's something outside of God. So then you're putting hell as the circumference of the circle? Boy, that's... Uh, no, what I'd say is hell... I mean, this is... Re- now you're getting into a metaphor... Well, you guys...
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, it's a really good question. It, it, Mel, you and Melody are, are going to the same place. It's really interesting. Hell is a place removed from God... Um, the, you know, it's but they're human beings. It's uh, it's these are things created. Um, they've turned away from him. They still exist. That's the whole point I'm making. They still exist in being, or they couldn't be punished. But they're separated from God. So metaphysically, however you want to image that, that's the condition we're talking about.
4: So you're saying the, the
0: circumference is miserable. Um. the The circumference is where. I wouldn't say miserable. I'd say hell is misery, Dave. But I'd say that I used the same
4: same same point circumference. I mean, the outside of the circle is hell, the absence of God, because you said everything's got to be within God. Yeah, but I mean, that, and that's how I, you can be is 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 the circumference of the circle.
0: Right. the 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 only thing I'm yeah. The only reason I'm hesitating on that. I'm trying to stay close to Boethius. Because remember, Boethius is describing the circumference of the circle as destiny or fate, where everything is going on. You know, that people are in choice and they're doing things and um, yes. it's it's the world we're caught up in in time and sequence and chance and randomness. Can you
1: use um, the image of fading?
0: Hold on a second. Say say it again, Doc. You say it louder. Can
1: you, can you use the image of fading if God is is all goodness and the more you move away from him there's nothing to do you're an eternal soul that's the way he created you mm-hmm. so that's the way you're going to go on mm-hmm. um, but the more you move away from him the less
0: being you have
1: the more faded you get to the point where when you are in hell your, your soul is there but you're totally faded
0: Did everybody here Suzanne the, 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 the word that I would use was absence of being, that if God is being, he is the fullness. Of, remember, God is infinite. The, the, the hope of all Christians is that we will look on God one day, that we will see him. But looking on God is looking into somebody whose nature we will never see the end of. He's infinite. Um, so he is infinite plenitude, goodness, being itself. To move away from him is to is to lose our being, to continually become less and less of what we were given to be. So we're being less. We're still created. He created us. We have immortal souls. But um, Suzanne's word was fading, moving towards emptiness or non-being. You know, It's hard for me, conceptually, to allow for extinction because he made the soul... Um, immortal. And I want to be careful because I'm, right now I'm trying to stay faithful to Boethius. What I want to do is just be clear about what we're saying, when, what we're understanding when he says that God is good and all fortune is good. Because what he's saying is that on the circumference, even, even though evil things we see things that appear to be evil and they they can be. But we have to be careful of our judgments because God is it worth doing something that we don't always know? That's that's why the church asks us, be very careful about making judgments of other people. It doesn't matter their race or sex or national. It does not matter. We are to be careful in any judgments we make of a human being because only God really knows the soul. Um, church is really careful about it. The state sometimes can't be careful. I mean, they have to punish a person to get a danger off the streets. But um, here Boethius is making a, an argument, remember, to try to help Boethius recover his sense of who he is. I think the most one of the most important things not to lose sight of here is we're in the middle of an argument, but we're also in the middle of an instance where a person's going to be sentenced to death. He's going to die. He's going to be executed. And he's trying to he's trying to recall what's most important for him when he's going to lose this world what's most important for him is that he he not forget that the God that he has studied all of his life sees things differently from the way we do book five is going to clear up this some can we go any any I'm, I'm glad to take questions anybody else if there's any pressing ones I want to get to five the thing I want to warn.
3: Hi, can you hear me?
0: Who's this? So good.
3: Hi, this is Michelle.
0: Hi, Michelle.
3: Can- Hi. Um. Yeah. I just. I'm finding this. Um. Just amazing to think that. Um. I feel like in today's world we get so caught up between things of being good and evil. That we don't in um, like God and Satan, and I and I love this. Um, this how you're sharing that evil is nothing, and that all is is good and created by God. Because um, I, I don't know, I just I feel like um, I've had a lot of personal experiences of of different things that. When you talk about not judging and so forth of people, like, where where you think one way and then you, you know, it's amazing how God can uh, change that person over time. And, uh, you know, the conversion of heart, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even like on death row, uh, right. Um, right. you know, the evil person and up to the time that they... Um, you know, get convicted that they can they can change because if so, I, I like the idea of thinking that evil is nothing, and that everything is good. That we it is a mystery, and that we don't know how. You know how things are going to uh, how the evil is going to change. Or you know how God's going to use it for good. Um, I don't know. I, I don't ha- like. I have a. I th- I kind of have that same philosophy of thinking that way. Like I'm really understanding this, and and, and I didn't know, but I feel like the world today. Like um, when you had mentioned. Um, I think it was last week. It was you know. how uh, we were. <laughs> I was laughing because Maria, I, I totally could understand what she was saying. And, like, what do you mean there's no evil? Because, and I feel like I'm kind of right, like today there's so much, there's so much evil that you can't think there isn't evil, that right. evil's nothing.
0: Right. It's right. like
3: I feel like we're just kind of talked.
0: that. <laughs> I want to, I want to
3: make any sense. I don't, yeah,
0: know. no, 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 absolutely. I, I want to put in a cautionary word here. Um, Remember we're dealing with a philosophic argument and we're going to root things. So in terms of being, God is all being and um, he is the fullness of being. Um, We're creatures. We were created. He wasn't. He's uncreated. Evil is nothing, but I want to be careful. Um, In the passages I'll get to, Boethius will qualify this. Um, So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I I want to respond to you. I think the the Catholic Church has always um, been on guard against um, what the Church knows as a Manichaean belief that good and evil coexist. I I don't I think it's it's not uncommon for people of faith. I I think it's more a part of the Protestant world because the Protestant reformers all said um, the consequences of the fall was depravity. We're corrupt in essence. We're in essence corrupt. I don't believe that. Um, Boethius doesn't. Our church doesn't. We were wounded, but I think there's a tendency in the church, on the part of a lot of people, to look at evil as if it were a positive thing. You know, it's like it was outside God. the The, the reason I'm pushing this so much is, I, I want to just give me a second here, um, Michelle. Um, I want to reinforce what you're saying, but I also want to qualify it because I think it needs qualifying, particularly in light of um, Maria's questions last week. That we understand that evil is a privation. It's a turning away. It's a, it's losing being. It's, it, Suzanne's word was fading, as if it's, you know, somebody becoming weaker and weaker. We still have a nature. We're still present, but we're suffering because we've rejected God and His goodness and chosen ourselves. So we become this diminished thing. Um, but at the same time, I want to just reinforce. I want to be really careful here. The Church. Puts us on guard, and now, now, for a minute, I'm stepping outside of Boethius. It's not in, I'll come to something, so I'm I'm not being unjust to him, but, but I want to be careful. Just I want to try to qualify what you said. Christ himself said, "Be on guard." We're to be as cunning as wolves and as gentle as lambs, something like that. D- I, nobody should forget. Christ said. Christ said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." he wasn't nice to the demons in the demoniac they were terrified when they saw him because they knew the god god was coming evil evil as a force you know there are people who commit evil acts they're humans but they do evil things when we get to dante dante is going to show us human beings who are possessed by demons so I don't want to romanticize this, and I don't think Boethius does. I want to get to something in a minute, and it's a way of trying to uphold what what uh, Maria was saying, you know, a week ago. Um, evil, evil people do evil things. So I don't want to romanticize things here at all. We're in a philosophic work in which a you know lady of philosophy is trying to help Boethius remember things at a time when he's going to be executed that something unjust is happening. As a matter of fact, it probably should be said, evil people led to this. He's suffering the evil f- actions of evil people. Evil's there. We can't, in, in fact, we're called by Christ to fight it. So we can't pretend that the world is all good. What I'm saying and what Boethius is saying is not to lay back. In fact, he's. I'm going I want to get to that passage in a minute. He's not saying, resign yourself. In fact, fact, he's going to make it clear, we've got to do everything we can to fight to be good. Because it's a real fight. Evil evil is a a real threat to us. So I want to be careful. Boethius is not romanticizing God. Philosophically, he's going to a point to show there's nothing outside of God. It's not evil. Evil is a privation. It's an absence. If you start believing that evil is something outside of God, you become Manichaean, and you make evil a real presence, then you're dealing with a very different problem. How do you answer that evil? How does God answer it if it's outside of him? So Boethius is making a coherent argument. This is the basis of our church. When Christ comes and deals with evil, we're, we're going to see that evil is something to be reckoned with. Um, I, thought your, I thought Bill's comment last week was, I, I so enjoyed it because I, I, he was right on. I mean, he made the point that, given the definition, and I think the rightness of it, evil will always destroy itself, no matter how powerful it becomes, no matter how many victims it claims. Maria was worried. I worry about it. We all worry. Evil will claim victims. People will die. Sadly, they. We'd hope they wouldn't. Evil is going to do bad things. There will be victims. The whole point of this book is we have got. To understand something here, so that in whatever way we struggle to be good, we we have a struggle against evil. We've got to meet it. We can't pretend that it's not there because it is. It is real. It's going to harm people. It's going to do so things.
1: It's real if it doesn't
0: exist. Because it's in human beings who are created here. Let's go to book five. Book five. I'm going to have to rethink my class with you guys. I thought we'd be done with Boethius a week ago, and good for you guys. Good for you guys. Okay. Quit big...
2: asking questions. Sorry? I said, quit asking questions. Me? Yeah, and then we'd be done with book five. <laughs> oh, God.
0: You sound just like Mary. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, I can't stop, so you guys are stuck. Um, Okay, big question. Here's, Here's the turning point. We just, major turning point when Lady Philosophy says, there can be no bad fortune. There cannot be. No matter how evil it appears to be, God is allowing something in order for us to grow better, to get better from whatever hardships we face, and to answer evil. The source of evil is not God, it's in humans and the angels who chose to turn away from God with their free will. That's when evil enters the world. It did not exist before because there was nothing but God in his completeness and in his goodness. So here's what Boethius asks. So if God is control of everything, he's, because he's been giving this image of he's the center of things, he orders things then um, how can man have free will? So this is the nexus. This is the center of the work. Page 118, I think. Wait, let's hold on. Yeah. 118, 19. In um, the middle of the page, I understand and I agree, it says, you say, but there's room in this chain of close-knit causes, because God's in charge of it, he's saying, is there room for freedom of the will, or does the chain of fate, Fate. this is Dave's question, to everything on the circumference of the circle, Just change of fate um, even the impulses of the human mind, there is freedom, she said, for it would be impossible for any rational creature to to exist without it. God made us in His image. The two ways in which we're most like Him is through our intelligence and our free will. We're most like Him to live in freedom with a mind. Top of um, or 118, 119. Once they have turned their eyes away from the light of truth, above to things on a lower and dimmer level, they are soon darkened by the mists of ignorance. Destructive passions torment them. Here, Michelle, this is evil coming into the world. And by yielding and giving into them they only aid the slavery they have brought upon themselves and become in a manner prisoners of their own freedom. The bottom one nineteen. Look, I said, there's something even more difficult which I find perplexing. So <laughs> Tell Boethius to stop asking questions. <laughs> What's the matter with this guy? Well, the two seem clean, contrary, and opposite. God's universal foreknowledge and freedom of the will. If God foresees all things and cannot be mistaken in any way, what providence has foreseen, sorry, what providence has foreseen as a future event must happen. So if God has foreknowledge, he sees everything, then um, man doesn't have free will because whatever he's doing is foreordained. So, that if from eternity providence foreknows not only men's actions but also their thoughts or desires, there will be no freedom of the will. No action or desire will be able to exist other than that which God's infallible providence has foreseen. For if they can be changed and made different from how they were foreseen, there will be no sure. No sure foreknowledge on the future, only an uncertain opinion. We know that God can't have an opinion about things. We have opinions in the sense that we are aware that very often we can't give a reason for our knowledge, in which case it's an opinion. That can't be so for God. God knows. So if he foreknows, the conclusion seems to be that man has no free will. She goes on in 120, I don't agree with the argument by which some people believe they can cut this Gordian knot. They say that it's not because providence has foreseen something as a future event that it must happen, but the other way around. That Because something is to happen, it cannot be concealed from divine providence. That is, it's necessitated already. So providence has only seen it because it was already destined. It was fated. Okay? So those are the two Horns of the Dilemma at this point. In this way, the necessity is passed to the other side. It is not necessary, they say, that what is foreseen must happen, because God foresees it; it's predestined. It's not necessary, they say, that what is foreseen must happen, but it is necessary that it was destined to happen must be foreseen. That is, the destiny rules everything. We're destined to do certain things, so naturally God couldn't see anything else. It's crucial to get these two differences. Is everybody clear? The question is if God foresees everything, then they're foreordained. That's one side. The other side is all things are necessity, they're, they're fated, they're a matter of destiny. And because they are, of course, God will see them that way. Okay? Um, but what I'm trying to show is that whatever the order of the causes, the coming to pass of things foreknown is necessary, even if the foreknowledge of future events does not seem to impose the necessity on them. <laughs> now, this is where I was sympathizing with Melody and Kay. I mean, I think it's easy to read, but I think conceptually, I think this is where our minds have to go to work. Okay, this is the turning point, and I think this is where Boethius's medication, or his medicine, sorry, gets strong. Because he's, he's going um, to the root of the problem. Up to this point, we've learned a couple of things. That human beings turn their minds to things of the world, hoping to be happy and find out they're not. She's shown that Man will never be happy if he turns his mind to these things because none of them are lasting. They're perishable. They will not answer his longing. There's only one thing that's complete in itself and self-sufficient and complete goodness. That's God. So it's only when he goes to God that he will be happy. And it's only when he goes to him that he'll start participating in him and become good like him, even if he's a human being. He will always remain human, he won't turn into an angel, God made him as a man, but something divine will enter into his being. Those who turn away from him like the angels will still be angels or men, but they will become grotesque, whore figures of themselves. They will have lost what they were given to be. Okay. So she's taken us through these stages and shown now that there can can be no bad fortune. Whatever God is doing is trying to bring everything to a good end. Does that mean some people will not be damned or some angels will not be damned? No. Because some people choose that. But Boethius is giving us to understand our mind that if God is the way we think he is, these are some of the things that follow from that fact. Okay? Okay. Now he's taking up the question: if God, if God sees everything and he foresees, um, does man lose his free will? And and Lady Philosophy is saying there's two questions. We have to determine whether God, because God has foresight, he determines it. They're preordained, they're predestined, or whether they were already fated, and because they were, he sees them that way. That's the That's the point where we're at. Any questions at this point? Before we go on, everybody sees the problem, yeah. We're 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 really dealing with the question whether man has free will, with a God who foresees things. Lady philosophy goes on. If a man, there's two things to consider, and this is where I think the thinking I just, I think it's amazing, and I, but I also think it's hard because we have to think, have to think. If a man is sitting, it's necessary that the opinion which concludes that he is sitting is true. Suzanne is sitting here right now, and she's rocking. So my, my knowledge is necessary. That's I can't draw any other conclusion. It's necessary that she's sitting, she is. On the other hand, if the opinion about the man is true because he is sitting, it's necessary that he is sitting. There is necessity, therefore, in both statements, that I know she's there, that's necessary. That she's sitting there means necessarily she is sitting there. She's not doing something else. She's not in the kitchen or... Um, need a glass of wine or... Stop, stop. Um, no, don't. There duck. is a necessity, therefore, in both statements. The one is that the man is sitting, the other that the opinion is true. But it is not because the opinion is true that the man sits. I hope that's clear to everybody. The opinion, right, is true because he's sitting. So although the cause of truth proceeds from the one side, there is nevertheless a common necessity in the other side. Clearly the same reasoning applies to providence and future events. For even if it's the case that they are foreseen because they're going to happen, and not that they happen because they're foreseen, it's nonetheless necessary that either future events be foreseen by God or that things foreseen happen as foreseen, and this is alone enough to remove freedom of the will. Now, this is really interesting because what happens, what's one of the consequences of removing free will? If you deny that man has free will and God foresees everything, then what's the point of giving him deserts, punishments, or rewards? I hope that's clear because the whole point about this is justice and re- or rewards and punishments. Good men have awful things happen to them. Evil men have good things. Good men are punished and evil men are rewarded. Boethius has gotten us to a point where she says God will be sure that people will be punished for their actions and good people will be rewarded for theirs. Now we're at a point where the argument is, does man he have free will or not? If God foresees things, how can man have free will? And if he does not have free will, how in the world can God give him rewards or punishments? It makes no sense. For Calvin to say some people were predestined to damnation, that they were already created to be damned? God, that just sense thrills I mean, just shills every time I think about it. What an image of God! It's so disturbing. Um on page one hundred twenty one, finally, if anyone thinks something is different from what is, not only is it not knowledge, but it's a false opinion very far from the truth. So if something is destined to happen in such a way that its occurrence is not certain and necessary, who could foreknow that it's to happen? For just as knowledge is unalloyed by falseness, so that which is comprehended by knowledge cannot be other than it is comprehended. Indeed, the reason why there's no deception in knowledge is because it's necessary for things to be exactly as knowledge understands them to be. I know Doc's sitting here. Nobody will convince me otherwise. A madman may say she's not. I'm not going to believe him. Uh, Stephanie's right there. Um, I'm counting on her weekly, even if she doesn't show up, because I'm not sure without her I'll have the volume where it should be. Um, There are things we know we should not shake on them. There are some things that are up for discussion. We deliberate on them. They're speculative things. Okay, here's where it gets tricky. It makes no sense to even think about rewards and punishment if man doesn't have free will. If God foreknows everything, then it seems to be that man doesn't have free will okay um, here's the crux of the argument I don't know that we'll get through this tonight and I'm not going to press on this I what I'm going to do is if we don't finish this tonight I'm going to ask everybody to reread the last 10 pages of boethius um, we can start Dante you know next week but I I want to I want to make sure that we we do justice to this because I know that these are these are basic to everything we do, and most people don't know them. So, page one twenty-five, um, towards the top. I'm going to do a lot of reading again, so be patient with me. Okay, I want to make sure that this all gets out. It cannot be that what's foreseen as a future event does not come to pass. If it's a future event and it's seen that way, it will come to pass. It would be false if we believe that what providence foreknows is future events is not going to happen, instead of believing that although they happen, they were not predestined in their own nature. You'll, be easy, you'll easily be able to see this. We, we see many things before our eyes as they happen, like the action we see charioteering, charioteers performing in order to control and drive their chariots, the other things of this sort, but no necessity forces any of them to happen in this way. We watch a car going down the street. We see it happening. Did any necessity force it to drive down the street? We're online together right now. Is there any necessity forcing any of us to do this? No, but we're doing it, right? So the fact that, like Suzanne, the the fact that we're doing it means necessarily we're here doing it. We are here. So if we say, I know that we're here, that knowledge is sound. Okay?
3: Are you fine?
0: Therefore all those things which happen without happening of necessity are before they happen, future events about to happen, but not about to happen of necessity. For just as the knowledge of present things imposes no necessity on what's happening, so foreknowledge imposes no necessity on what's going to happen. But this, you will say, is the very point in question. This is where we've been going. Um, see where there can be foreknowledge of things whose occurrence is not inevitable. There seems to be a contradiction. And you think that the necessity of events is consequent upon their being foreseen, while if there is no necessity, they cannot be foreknown. Because you believe that nothing can be comprehended by knowledge unless it's certain. If events are uncertain, occurrence if events of uncertain occurrence are foreseen as they were certain it's only clouded opinion not the knowledge not the truth of knowledge for you believe that to have opinions about something which differ from actual facts is not the same thing as fullness of knowledge it's not real knowledge okay Suzanne just got up to answer the phone I know that it's not an opinion I may have opinions about the political leadership or you know the wisdom of asking questions right now you know or, but um so he, she's saying that God can't have opinions about things if he knows them and the knows them they have to be if that's the case then um, the whole case for free will gets washed down the tubes here's where here's the turn that we've been coming to the cause of this mistake is that people think that the totality of their knowledge depends on the nature and capacity to be known of the objects of knowledge. But this is all wrong. Everything this is the the major point was God is good. There are no there's no bad fortune. That was a major turn. Now we're at an even deeper major turn. But this is all wrong. Everything that is known is comprehended not according to its own nature, but according to the ability to know of those who do the knowing. Let us make it clear with a brief example. The same roundness of shape is recognized in one way by the sight and another way by the touch. Sight and touch know things differently. The sight remains at a distance and sees the whole simultaneously by means of rays of light. We can look at, I can look at the lamp across the room. I see the whole thing. If I touched it, I'd only be touching a particular part of it. So it's two totally different ways of perceiving the world, of engaging the world. Similarly, man himself is beheld in different ways by sense, perception, imagination, reason, and intelligence. Now, here's, this is the crux of the thing, but, but I want I to clarify this because this may be confusing. What he's saying is this. Let's see if I can make this clear. Um, it's wrong to think that knowledge rests completely on the nature of the thing known, a ball, a world, a universe, Marilyn at her desk, Tina, writing note, you know, whatever. Um, It's one thing to think that we can know the object known. It's another thing to know the mode of the one knowing. Now, let me just make this clear, crystal clear. Does an animal know, let's say there's a tree in front of us, right here, okay, outside my window. Does an animal know that tree the way I do? Does a human know that tree the way an angel does? Will the angel look at that tree and see it the same way I do? Will I see it the same way the angel sees it? Will the dog see it the same way either one of the, the angel or the human? The point he's making is that it's not just the nature of the knowledge that's important, it's the mode of the one knowing. Before we go any farther, I want to be clear on that because it's so fundamental and it's one of those things nobody thinks about. Is the mode of knowledge the same in an angel as it is for a man? Is it the same in an animal as it is for a man? Does an animal have reason? Is everybody here? Does an animal have reason no he does not an angel has reason but he has no body an angel has a form but no body has no matter human beings learn through our we learn through our senses things are you know all this I' we're engaging it uh, to our senses but our senses deliver things to our minds angels have no bodies they perceive things wholly in the sight of God. Their mode of knowing is completely different from our own. So if we're going to talk about the difference between um, God's way of knowing and man's, we have to get clear in what we mean by knowing. Because remember, the issue here is, does God, if God foreknows everything, does that cause them to be predestined? So... Boethius' Lady Philosophy is taking this question, how do we know? And it's important to understand the way we know before we can answer that question. So we've got to be clear here. The most important thing for us to be aware of is that the the mode by which we know things is different from, let's say, animals. And what she says here to make it even richer is pretty amazing. She says on page 126, Similarly, man himself is beheld in different ways by sense, perception, imagination, reason, intelligence. We have four things involved in every act of knowledge. We have our senses, our imagination, our powers of reason, what the medievals called ratio, and intellectus. Senses, imagination, um, cognitive reason, and understanding. We know by each of those four things. The senses know by matter, by corporeal matter, by shape and matter, right? Our senses touch things, a flower, it sees colors. Things are delivered to our senses through material things, shapes. Imagination knows them as shape without matter. We take an image into our imagination, but no matter goes with it. We know it as an image but with no matter. Reason is the way we know things step by step. The the medievals called it rationality or cognitive reason. Going step by step, we have to work through it just like the way we are right now. Working step by step to grasp something. Intelligence, or what the ancients called intellectus, there's two different powers of reason here. One's called ratio, we reason step by step. Intellectus is knowing it wholly. We all know that experience when we suddenly go, ah, I see. You can put, like, whatever reason, We can put a, you know, a process together and go, when you get to the end of it and you see the whole, you go, ah, I see now. Now I see. The point she wants to make is, can the senses understand what intellectus does? Can an animal you know, if you touch a lamp, can the senses understand what intellectus does? No. Because senses understand what the imagination does. No. Can ad- imagination understand what reason does? No, because it's working just through images. Can reason understand what the intellectus when you when you put a whole thing together? No, because reason's doing things step by step. But the reverse is true. Intellectus can understand what reason's doing. Reason can understand what the imagination doing, and you know all the way down, imagination of the senses. So what we're learning to see is there's this hierarchy of things involved in the way man knows. Now to go back to the David's coming a while ago. You know, about the circumference and the center. Remember that when Boethius described lady philosophy, described the circle, she said, On the edge of the circle, um, all these things happen, and we understand them by fate. And she used the word reasoning. We reason things one at a time, we're caught up in them. At the center, we approach understanding, we see. So instead of being caught up step by step, we finally reach a point where the mind can grasp the whole thing and say, ah, I see now. Because you put the whole thing together. You're not just caught in pieces. All of us know that. In fact, Melody, I'm thinking of you right now, and I um, I, hope, I hope I'm hope i not stepping out of line here. I remember thinking when you were describing yourself and your daughter and thinking, you know, I used to do this and my daughter did. And Miley, Miley, I didn't say it at the time, but I was thinking bless your soul that you are the way you are, bless your daughter, have no apologies. I mean, teachers do stupid things. We learn step by step, you know, but eventually the the whole point of learning patiently is so that we can come to a point and say, ah, I see. You know, um, um, don't laugh at me this. In my mind, in my mind, there is no way you could use the word Odysseus to apply to your husband Unless you saw some hole to him that allowed you to do that, because I know there are times in the life of a wife when the last thing she can see is a hole and she'd like to take she'd like to take her husband apart, part by part. Same thing with wives. the, the whole our whole nature as human beings is to learn in time to put things together for those moments when we can have these epiphanies and go, ah, I see." That's who she is. That's who he is. That's what was going on. This was the math problem. Now I see it. Is everybody clear what's at issue? Because it's important to go here before we go to the next step. So, in in case anybody missed out here, remember, Lady Philosophy was saying, "I've got to go about this slowly because you're not ready. I've got to give you medicine when you're ready." So, right now, she's she's been for ten pages. She's been really toughening up. So, let me stop. Any. I want to be clear, we've been tackling first principles and they're, they're the sorts of things everybody takes for granted, but if we don't go to first principles, we don't complete ourselves because they go to the basic things about our nature. And how many people understand this stuff today? You guys are rare, rare people. Suzanne just brought some wine. I'm trusting you all know why. <laughs> Did you have some, time? Just
4: because, just because God's all-knowing, is that the way he wished it would be in the master plan of our life?
0: Yeah, that's, that's the great question, David. Because,
4: because God's knowing that we're going to deviate from his will Our freedom. He knows that we're going to screw up and make a decision that he wouldn't want us to make. Right.
0: That doesn't mean it's his predestination. Right. Right. No good. And and if we're putting this together, it should mean that that remember, God is allowing things so that we can suffer, hopefully to get better um, and prosper from some things. I mean if if we're trusting in God and, and Boethius is right, then we're learning to see that God's at work every 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 moment of our lives. Even, even I mean, if he's not gonna violate our free will, he's not gonna do that. But if he works with our free wills, he's going to allow evil to happen, to test us, to try us. Remember the the passage was he allows hardships for us. He allows evil, hoping that, you know, because of their experiences, things will happen to help convert them and the good people will be tested to help strengthen it so the argument is that God is always at work he's a good god if he is then he's there is no there's no bad fortune he's even in, even with bad things he's bringing some good out of it do we see it that's the here let's make the next step because this is where it's going on page 130 Reason belongs only to the human race, just as intelligence belongs only to divinity. The result is that the kind of knowing transcends the others, which, which of its own nature knows not only its own objects, but the objects of the other kinds of knowing. So the senses will know something, the imagination will know something, reason will know something, but intellectus or understanding will know something more. It will put holes together. I know you all know that. There can't be a question about that. Those of you who are mothers or husbands or wives or teachers, you know you put together problems and you do it and there are moments where you suddenly go, yeah. And you watch it in kids when you're struggling to help a kid learn something and then suddenly the kid gets it. Um, So good teaching implies using all of those things. Senses, imagination, ratio, intellectus to help complete us in our knowing. Now here's where it's going. Um, To understand what's at issue here in this question about whether God's foreknowledge predestined things, we have to get clear on the difference between the way God knows and the way we do. Boethius has helped us because he's helped us to see the way we know. We know through our senses, our imagination, our reason, our powers of reason, our powers of understanding. Animals can't. Angels don't have bodies. So their mode of knowing is different. They don't have senses. They don't have imaginations. They know wholly. They see wholes. So, 135. In this life of today, you do not live more fully than in the fleeting and transitory transitory moment. Whatever therefore suffers the condition of being in time, even though it never had any beginning, never had any ending, and its life extends into the infinity of time, as Aristotle thought was the case of the world, it is still not such that it may properly be considered eternal." Its life may be infinitely long, but it does not embrace or comprehend its whole extent simultaneously. It still lacks the future while already having lost the past. We live in a moment we live in time, right? Right now, the, the next moment is still to be lived. I mean, I could get a heart attack, and this class is over. And my efforts to try to get clear on what Boiti is saying is already in the past. So for us, the real, the real time for us is in the present moment because the future's not quite here and the present moment is, is already passing in the past. That's the way we live. And that goes on indefinitely because the world has gone on as long as we know. It still acts the future while already having lost the past so that that which embraces and possesses simultaneously the whole fullness of everlasting life which lacks nothing of the future and has lost nothing of the past, that is what may properly be said to be eternal. She's making a distinction between what she calls perpetuity and eternity. Perpetuity means going on, moment by moment, one moment passing into the past, indefinitely. Eternity means there is no past or future. So, if we're going to understand the way God sees, we've got to be clear on that difference. There is no past or future for God, there's only an eternal now. Shakespeare has this wonderful phrase in one of his poems where he, where he talks about time's lackey, time's slave. This is amazing to me. It's so amazing. <clears throat> our present moment, our present moment is like a lackey, a sad copy. Of that eternal present that is God's kingdom, but it's fleeting. All the great poets—you got this from Odys—you got this from Homer. This was one of the major themes in the Odyssey. There are some people who want to keep living in the past. There are some people who want to keep dreaming about the future. What's the most important time for all of us? Every moment of our lives. The present moment, every single moment, while we have it. That's the one area or the one I don't know what to call it, ground in which we um, share with eternity. Our memory holds on to it so it enriches our sense of this. That's why the memory is so important. But the present moment is that moment of eternity. Now why is Lady philosophy making this distinction between perpetuity and eternity? Who cares? What's Why is it important to see that? Melody, you got something?
2: Okay, so I think it's because we think in terms of future and, and what's going to happen and, you know, eons from now, we kind of think of that way. The way God thinks, but God, since everything happens, there is no present, past, and future. Um, that is providence. Oh gosh, I don't know how to say this very well. Okay.
0: No, I'm No, I'm I'm glad what of, you're doing. Just keep.
2: I was thinking of an example, um, like like you talked about. We're all online for class. And that's a fact. We're here online. And to us, it was our free will that brought us here. But God's uh, foreknowledge knew that we were going to be here because he, he doesn't live in past, present, or future. He just knows. So even though it was our free will that brought us here, God knew that it was going to happen because there, there is no future with him. It all happens at the same time. So that's how I'm trying to describe what I think is the difference between what you were talking
0: about. This is so And amazing.
2: I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet now.
0: No, don't say that. I don't want you to hold yourself to that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. We'll all miss something if you do. Connie, make sense of this. Help us out. <laughs>
2: Maria
0: wants to speak <laughs> <laughs> good for you Connie okay Maria you've had it boy I just I'm I'll remember that from Connie forever <laughs> that that was the most wonderful cop-out I've I've experienced in a, in a god that was good I I so loved that come on Maria I I'm I'm behind Connie in this one so let me ask the question because M- Melody said this I'm you know, I, I'm sort of enjoying this because when I, you know, remember when when this began, when Boethius was in his cell, crying and whining and feeling sorry for himself, and Lady Philosophy comes in and says, "The problem, God, the problem with you is you've been reading too much literature." You know, and the and the basis of our course is literature, and we're going through this philosophic work, and all I can think is this is going to be a tough class tonight because it's asking us to think, and I'm I'm just hearing them. You know, I'm watching the smoke from, the, you know, from the, the gears. Let me go back to what Melody said and put it to... By the way, I, I don't think there's a past or a future for God. There's only an eternal present. He is. That's our understanding. So I just want to put that out. There is no past or future for him. He is. It's an eternal present. That's the way it is. If God lives in an eternal present... Can there be foreknowing for him? I mean the whole issue let me go back. Let, let, hold, put that off the table. Sorry. Why is it important to make a distinction between perpetuity and eternity? That's where Lady Philosophy is taking us right now. And I'm I'm laughing because Melody has just said, stop asking questions. <laughs> Doc. What's 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 the why what's the difference between the two and why is it important?
1: Perpetuity is everlasting time. So it's one moment after another moment after another moment forever. Um, Eternity is without time. Um, It is where God is. So there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no forward movement or looking back. Um, it is, as you say, the eternal present. And the reason it's important is because if we don't have eternity, we don't have God. Because God is without beginning or end.
0: You guys hear that? Okay, I'm going to do something. You guys are going to hate me for this. Just hate me. Here, I'm going to... Suzanne just said, I think rightly, um, you, all, you, got, you all got the difference, right, between perpetuity and... It, perpetuity means just time goes on forever, each moment passing it, you know, opening to the next. And But in eternity, God is always present. There's no past or future. He is. That's the way God is. Um, and, and her comment when I said, why is it important, Who cares is because if we're in perpetuity we're removed from God and God's removed from us. Now I'm going to jump out of Boethius and I'm going to leave you guys with a question and I'm going to stop the class here because I've got a question for you guys. I'm going to give you a test next week when we start. All of you. Anybody anybody who comes late is going to be flunked. Um, that's how hard-nosed I can get you guys should have seen me 30 years ago. You guys are getting the softest part of me in this age. <laughs> um, here's the op- here's the opening line. Here's the opening line of T. S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which is a, a a work I hope we will get to. I hope we stay together. Here's the opening lines of Four Quartets. God, stunning. And see if you can see the relevance here. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Now hold on to those opening lines, time present, time past, are both perhaps present in time future. Time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Um, so if Boethius is right that there are two kinds of time we're talking about here, one is perpetuity, one is eternity, and we're talking about the way we know that when when we look at people acting in the world, remember, there's two perspectives. From the center of the still point, the center of the circle, the closer we get to God, the more we share in his vision, the simplicity of it. The more we're on the margins, the more hectic, the more susceptible we are to random events, the more harried, the more worried, the more frustrated. Is everybody following? Are those accurate? I mean, I'm hoping... So Uh, what matters is the way we see things, how we know. And we've learned from Boethius that there are these four faculties involved with us as humans and that what we see depends on the mode of the one knowing. We know things in time. Yeah? God knows them in a timeless order. His mode of knowing is is different. So he's at the still point of that circle. We're at the end. The question is, does he foreknow, if he does foreknow something, does it predestine it? Or are things determined because they were destined, and so he sees them that way? Now, to get to that answer, Boethius is distinguished between the faculties involved in the way we know, senses, imagination, reason, understanding. And he's also distinguished now between perpetuity and eternity. Why? Why? Um, because in the next two pages he's going to answer it, so we're at the end of the work. I do not want to answer this right now because I really would like you guys to settle with this some and you know do some rereading. But here's my question: think about think about all that he's saying to us. You know, um, does does God's knowledge of something determine it, um, or are things already destined because of something else, and he sees them that way? The last two pages are going to answer that. I'm not, I'm not going to give you the answer. You guys, you guys need to struggle with that. But, but here's my question. I mean, he, he's up to this point. He's given us all this, and at this point, he's left us with two ways of seeing. One that's associated with perpetuity. We're in the moment, caught in the moment. We're at the circumference of the circle. But there's also eternity. It's the still point. It's simple. God has no past. There's no future. He's in an eternal present. He is that's the way he sees if we learn to see the way God does how will it affect our understanding the way we live our lives now just one more thing I mean this is going outside the text but if you'll pardon me for a minute so we've got perpetuity time going on forever eternity an eternal present it is the two worlds are connected. God, Doc's just said, and when I said, who cares, what's the difference? She said if we remain in those two worlds, there's no God in our world. There's no God. We're separated from that way of seeing. Okay, is everybody, is everybody agreeing with me so far? I mean, are you all following? Is everybody... That, that we're caught in that way of seeing as humans. It's still a great thing. I mean, Lady Philosophy is helping this guy go to his death. It's not like this is a small thing. Remember, she's helping him recover his memory, his amnesia, what he's lost. His place with God. She's helping him to recover his place with God. So he can go to his death without all those sluts around. Um, so she's not doing a small thing. But here she leaves us. I don't want to conclude it. I'd like to conclude it next week. and. And um, we'll, let's just plan to start the Divine Comedy, you know, but bring it um, and we'll, so read the first eight cantos, but, but I don't want to finish them, but here's, here's the statement I want to end. So Suzanne just said, one of the important differences is in perpetuity, we don't have God. And in eternity, he separated st- but what happens when you throw the incarnation into that? What happens with the incarnation? What does he do for our way of seeing? He said, in me you see the Father. Man, Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not his world. He's trying to teach us that there were other ways of seeing and of loving. So suddenly, the difference between perpetuity and eternity closes. God enters time and we have a way into eternity. Remember what Boethius is saying. The more good we do, the more we participate in that divine life, the more we share in that goodness, the fuller our lives. The more we turn away from it, the more, Doc's word was fade, the more we fade. So I hope everybody's seeing these are not small things. These go right to the root of everything we live for. Connie, you've got a question.
2: How do you know that?
0: <laughs> like, like you're puzzling. Come on, I want to hear it honestly. So no, no,
2: no, but it's not on. not necessarily on that. But I was just thinking about predestination. Yeah. I mean, if God knows everything, He knows that we sin. We go to confession. You know, we grow in love with Him. We continue it until our death. So at that point you know, it's like predestination is not the predestination that you were talking about that Martin Luther was saying that we were condemned, you know, people were condemned to to, um, hell at birth, but another kind of predestination to, I mean, because if he knows everything, he knows that the people that are going to make it to heaven are going to make it to heaven.
0: Okay, let's stop. No, No, good question. I'm so glad. Let's leave it with that, because that's to me, that goes through... So the last two pages are answering your question. Oh. So I'm no, no. I'm glad you've asked it. I mean, you you've just nailed it. So next week when we meet, I'm trusting that everybody will have. I'm, in fact, I'm going to ask you to read the last, you know, six or seven pages to get to Connie's question, because the last two pages will answer it. But I don't think you. I think it'll help if you just carry what we've been doing forward, into those last few pages, and. Okay. Um, when we start next week, Connie, I'm starting with a question for you.
2: (laughs) Uh oh!
0: No, no, don't, no, no, don't, don't, don't. This is where we all are. Um, Okay. So we'll finish up Boethius next week. Um, These are tough, wonderful, wonderful questions. Just wonderful questions. Um, we will start Dante. What you're gonna see when you start Dante, the whole Divine Comedy is partly structured on the consolation. Dante wants to go to heaven. He's trying to climb a mountain and he gets pushed back. He can't do it. He learns he can't do it alone by himself. This is amazing. Very Catholic. He can't do it alone. He gets beaten back and suddenly somebody comes to help him and lo and behold who is it? It's Virgil. It's Virgil. Virgil will say, you can't go up that hill till you go down. You can't go up until you go down. You have to go. You have to learn to see your sins as they are in their horrible fullness. So he has to go into hell. He he has to look at all these awful things before he can rise. And then he will come out purgatory up to heavens. So it's in some sense the skeleton for the whole of the Divine Comedy is Boethius. So, um, good work, you guys. This is—I mean—I know it's probably a mind twister for a lot of you, but um, just know it is for me. Just know it is for me. Um, I'm gonna—I'm gonna go have some wine.
1: I have a
2: quick question. Go ahead, Tina. Um, when you were saying uh, the eternal present with the incarnation of God.
3: He enters time, and then what was it you said after that?
0: Oh my God! I don't ask me to. I, what I, I do, when students do that, I, there's no way I'll remember none. Don't, don't. There's not. It's not ever going to happen. The point that I was trying to make is that there are these two orders of time: perpetuity and eternity. Perpetuity means ongoing time. It's there's a time. So every 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 moment receives into itself what was about to be. You know, like we're about to close the class. It's going to be a present moment, right? In a, in a moment, I will close off and you can, we'll all say goodnight. So that moment will come, but it's still in the future. And what we just did 30 seconds ago is already a part of the past. So that's perpetuity. It goes on like that forever. Time, these moments. In God's time, there's only an eternal present. He is that's his name. When he named himself in the Old Testament, he said, I am that am. I am. And I, actually, Tina, I'm really glad for your question because it's just thinking about it. It, you know, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a good enough explanation. But we've got these two orders of time, perpetuity, eternity, right? In eternity, there's no past or future. God's not looking back at a past. He's not looking forward. So the question and Suzanne's point was there's no, so in, I said, who cares? What's the difference? What's the, why does it matter? Her response was there's no God in perpetuity. We're in, we're in a time, you know, in an ongoing moment. God's in eternity. So there's a, a couple points to be made. One is we don't see things the way he does. And yet Boethius is trying to help us learn to see more, to help us see more the way God does. Our whole work has been about that. And we're coming now to that point. So that's the first point. The other is this. Mike, I just I read that thing from Eliot. You know, if all time is, let me read it because I love. I just I want to do this. Time present, time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. We can't redeem ourselves in time. There's no way we can yeah i can't but what happens with the incarnation one of the trinity one of the persons who lived in what we're calling this eternal present father son holy spirit they lived in eternal infinite the plenitude of all this goodness the second person gives up his personhood in that realm empties what paul called empties himself takes on the form of a human being and enters time. God. So he makes God present to us. Yeah. Um, he makes God present and offers us a way to enter into God's goodness, this eternal world that we've been talking about. So I was only making the point, Tina, that you know, with Boethius, right now we're left with these two realms: the perpetuity and the eternity. Um, I'm I'm throwing this in outside of Boethius. This is me seeking from within the church now. That the interesting thing for me is when you take what Boethius has given us and then, you know, are aware of these two different orders of time: perpetuity and eternity. What it means for God to enter time. Christ was the creator. He he created everything. The creator becomes a creature. The all-powerful becomes vulnerable, becomes a babe. You know all the paradoxes that entered when Christ entered the world. And he said over and over again, he said, "In me you see the Father." He kept, you know, it wasn't just about him. He was really the Father. He calls the Spirit after him. So a whole divine order enters our order to help us see things differently, to love differently, to feel differently, to understand differently. So that's that's in addition to Boethius. I I threw that in. I'm not being fair to well, I think I am being fair to Boethius. But um, okay, Um, any I've already gone past time. I'm trying to hold myself. Any. Other urgent questions that to take on, or okay. What I would ask of everybody is that you read, reread the last, you know, the section, the last section, six, ten pages of Boethius. Put it together um, because I really, I thought Connie's question was right to the point. I mean, it just goes right to the point. So, and Boethius answers it. Let's let's see if we can answer it together next week when we start. What? How do we understand Con, Connie's? Question. I mean, what's the answer to it? Okay. I'll see you guys in a week. Um, let's keep each other in our prayers, and um, you guys have a good week. Okay. Stay
2: safe. Thank Sorry. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you.
0: Yeah.
3: Good night. Thank thank- very much. Yeah. You. Good night.
0: You guys all stay safe too. That's from Suzanne. Thank you.
3: Thank you.